0: Good evening. Welcome to NUFC Matters Tuesday night, uh, joined by Ben Jacobs in a little bit. He's just uh, putting his makeup on, I think, uh, but he is getting ready uh, to join us. Um, just a quick one on Ross Gregory. Yeah, apologies. He was supposed to be doing six till seven, but Ross has been hit by the dreaded COVID. Um, he did offer to come on, uh, but I was not going to ask uh, Ross to come on from his bed. Uh quite unfair uh, so uh, Ross hopefully will be fitting well uh, and back next we get well soon Ross if you are watching whilst Ross uh, is recuperating Ben is getting his makeup on I'm going to play the ads and then we'll get straight into it big thank you to skipsandbins.com telephone 0800 25 3, email inquiries at skipsandbins.com website skipsandbins.com easy contract free and pay as you go waste collection Thanks to Darren Baldwin Funerals, independent funeral directors, you can find them at 304 Old Durham Road, Gateshead, telephone at 0191 478 2730, email Darren at darrenbaldwinfunerals.co.uk or go to the website darrenbaldwinfunerals.co.uk. Thanks to Garden of Healing Dispensary, CBD hemp and cannabinoid specialists, you can find them at the gohd.com. And thanks to 3Property, who specialise in sourcing investment properties for their clients who are going to invest in the Northeast. They offer a full in-house service from sourcing the deals to managing the properties for you. They've done over 100 plus deals in the past 12 months for clients all over the UK. Give the guys a follow on Instagram, matty.patter underscore northeast property and phil.reed underscore northeast property or email phil at 3property.co.uk if you're interested in getting a good property deal. Thanks also to Mr. Vicky's Sources. They are handmade in Cumbria. You can find them at mrvickys.co.uk or give them a call on 01768 210102. Thanks to Media Arts for all the help with the video technology side of things. And thanks to qtechshop.co.uk for makers of pool tables and snooker tables in Wallsend, and Newcastle and the guys who run our website, nufcmanners.com com. If you want to subscribe to the channel, hit the NUFC Matters logo in the bottom right hand corner and you can subscribe for free. Hit the thumb up underneath the video uh, to like it. it, does us a big favour, and click share to share to your social media such as Facebook and Twitter. Maybe it's added to a Newcastle United group. Uh, you can also make a donation, just hit the thanks button underneath if you're enjoying the content and you want to share something with me the people on the channel and you can also click join which means that you uh, commit to maybe a monthly membership or you can become a cult member how do you do that Well, you go to the website nufcmatters.com and you search for membership what do you get for your 25 pound one-off payment you get a cup a pen a membership card and a scarf and entry into the monthly draw we also have a smart code there you go, the QR code there. If you put your smartphone over it, it'll take you straight to the website and you can get involved in a cult membership pack today. We also give you something for nothing. If you subscribe to the show, then email john at nufcmatters.com and get your free car window sticker now. We also support the food bank on here. nufcfansfoodbank.co.uk is the match day bucket website. You just need to go there and you can make a virtual donation. Don't forget, during the season on match days, we're at the Dog and Parrot with Supermac pre-match and post-match. And we're at Pumphrey's, John Anderson and John Gibson pre-match only. Also got the Takeover Anniversary Party coming up at the Irish Centre. Tickets are £2 on the door and uh, you can get your tickets for that from nufcmatters.com. And Supermac will be at the Terrace Club in Seaton Delaval, Friday the 11th of November. Tickets are a tenner, table of 6 pounds and you can get those tickets from 0191 237 0133. And as promised, fresh from makeup, here he is, Ben Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> well, makeup's not done
1: a very good job, clearly.
0: <laughs> how do you do, mate? Good to see you as always. Yeah, you too. Um, thanks for coming on to, to talk Newcastle United for an hour. and um, But first, let's talk about England. Um, and we've we've discussed it a little bit this week already on the shows. Uh, John Askew says perhaps England's relegation was just too much for Ross to deal with at the moment. Ross was going to be a little bit earlier. He's got COVID, by the way. Uh, is anyone really bothered about the Nations Cup, by the way? Uh other questions about that, um, you know, have been hitting hitting the inbox. And, and Tom Lynch says, "Evening, everyone. How much longer will the fast as the nation's league continue? No one seems to like it in any country. I've got to be honest, Ben. I can't stand it. I, I, I'm just not interested. And relegation in international football is absolutely ludicrous. They've gone a step too far for me."
1: Yeah, I think with the promotion and the relegation, it's of less appeal when we're this close to a World Cup or a European Championship. And that takes a lot away from it. And as you say, with a country, you don't necessarily expect them to go up or down in this context. So the advantage of the Nations League is obviously that it does come with certain rewards and that adds impetus and excitement come the business end. But fundamentally, every country has got its own route towards qualification for major tournaments anyway. And therefore, when you're a bigger nation, I think that there becomes less appeal about playing in the Nations League. And obviously, if you're a smaller nation, it's about progression. And I can certainly understand how, for a smaller country, away from england or germany like last night it allows them the opportunity to play more like for like-minded competitive fixtures get some wins under their belt and climb and that helps with the progression and then of course it the higher end for want of a better word in terms of the rankings you get supposedly competitive fixtures and i think it's not perfect for sure but if england are going to play germany I would still rather there be something at stake than nothing at stake. But the question is, do England want to be playing Germany and Italy, or would they prefer to pick and choose? And I think this is what's interesting, not so much in the context of the Nations League, which does take a back seat when we're so close to a World Cup. But if you look at a Nations League game, forces you to play certain opposition based upon the draw, and usually of your standard which means from England's perspective, whether relegated or not, they're going to be coming up against serious opposition. So I think for me, the only real positive is that unpredictability and the fact that you are playing quality opposition. And when you're preparing for a world cup, that's a different perspective and test. So I don't love the format, although I do see the pathways to smaller nations and it can be very exciting come the semi-final and the final, but all the bits in between are congesting the fixture calendar and not really adding that much. But they are still competitive games. And I think that one aspect is very useful and interesting in the build-up to World Cup. So could, for example, the nations scrap this format and either in a European sense or in a global sense, have some kind of competitive warm-up tournament and we see this for example in women's football with the she believes cup which is highly respected there's a trophy at stake it's a gauge between some of the main nations and it helps england prepare for the european championships and the world cup but it's a one-off so during a break you go you play your three games in the space of two weeks or so and then you come home and i think that's the right kind of competitive format this is too tedious and cumbersome but The upside for me is that usually you play your friendlies and the closer you get to a World Cup, the more you tend to avoid other major nations because you don't want to give too much away. And if it's overly intense in any way, you might risk injuries right before a World Cup. And I think England playing in Italy and Germany now is very useful in some respects because they've never done that in this context before a major World Cup. So what have we learned well, positives and negatives, but still things perhaps we wouldn't have learned in just a bog standard friendly. So then coming back to last night, that's kind of what I liked about it, that we saw England in World Cup mode in part, falling behind, having to find a response, and then finally ending this goal drought and showing some hunger and some energy and some freedom coming forwards with good goals and generally, a fair amount of balance and depth because the substitutes that came on were very important as well. We learned a lot about Jude Bellingham, even as a teenager, being able to step up and have an impact for England. I thought that Saka was superb off the bench as well. Raheem Sterling did pretty well. Kane got his 51st goal. Mason Mount scored a morale-boosting first goal of the season. And I think generally, England just looked very exciting going forwards particularly after they went two nil down so that's the upside and they needed that because they couldn't have gone off to qatar with a dreary at the time as it looked like two 0 loss they had to find a response and they did and i don't think the equalizer was necessarily a momentum killer it took the edge off the result obviously but those kind of positives i'm not sure we'd have got them in a bog standard friendly i think if you play germany with nothing really at stake, you fall two nil down you don't draw the same preps crowd that's the other thing about the nation's league as soon as you call it competitive hopefully you sell out all of your stadiums as well and i think all of that just added to england needing an urgent response and treating that last kind of 20 minutes or so as a competitive fixture, and it paid off for sure. So that was very positive as well. And then negative, the mistakes. Obviously, Nick Pope was guilty of one for the third goal. A poor parry, unfortunately, allowing Havertz to get his second goal of the game. And Harry Maguire, a gifting possession for both goals and for the first one that he was guilty of conceding clumsily fouling as well and he afterwards waited around two hours to have a kind of heart-to-heart with gareth southgate so i think heading to qatar what we know is that there's a lot of energy and hunger there is that ability to score goals which perhaps we haven't thought in games gone by but the second half against germany still reminded us that england when it matters can be a threat but my worry is they're not going to keep clean sheets And I think until Gareth Southgate determines who his number one goalkeeper is and who his best two centre-backs are, and as a pairing as well, and if that's going to include Maguire, then other teams will be rubbing their hands against playing England because all three teams in the group alongside England, in my opinion anyway, will feel that they can score at least a goal in a game against England, which means suddenly you need two goals in every game to get a victory. And that's my worry for England, that they're heading to a World Cup in a very excitable manner and very capable of doing something. But by the same token, the philosophy is going to have to be to outscore their opponents because I don't see us keeping too many clean sheets.
0: Yeah, I would agree, mate. I mean, look, I, I, England internationals don't excite me at all. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've got to be honest, I only tuned in last night as I was channel hopping. I had no intention of watching it. I tuned in, it was two nil down. And then England scored as I was watching. Uh, so that, compelled me to watch the rest of the game. And I'm glad I did. Um but yeah, look, we've been here before. England struggling before World Cups, go into the World Cup and then do well. Uh, and Gareth Southgate certainly, I guess, you know, he's earned the opportunity with his previous showings and major tournaments uh, to give this World Cup a crack. You know, let's see how he does and, and then go from there. But um moving on, uh, a question from John Askew. He says, evening everyone, lads, have you any idea why the transfer fee on some deals is undisclosed? Is there something to hide, Ben?
1: yeah i mean there's always something to hide but it's not as cynical or suspicious as that phrase would make out so a transfer fee is hotly disputed because the buyer wants to paint one picture and the seller the other so they agreed to keep it a secret and then both parties will brief different fees for different narratives of course if you are a selling club you want to make it clear that the fee is as high as possible and you held out for what you were looking for because you take that back into the market. And it's particularly important during a window when you've got multiple deals ongoing. And then similarly, if you are the buyer, you want to make out that you've got the best possible deal. So if you go to another club, you're not bullied for a similar price, particularly if it's a like-for-like kind of player or age or position. So if you look, for example, at the Rafinha deal, even though it's not Newcastle related, Barcelona briefed that they were able to buy the player for about 15 million less than Chelsea's accepted offer and then Leeds came out on record once the window shut and said that the deal was pretty much the same as Chelsea offered and Chelsea have always maintained that as well and unless you see the paperwork you're never going to know categorically but this is very normal because Leeds United don't want to paint to their fan base or to the market that Rafinha wanted Barcelona, Chelsea bid 70 odd million. Barcelona could only pay 50 55, and they said, Okay, we'll just let him go off to Barcelona because then Leeds United fans don't think that their own club has got their back. And then any other club, when they hear a price tag from Leeds United, says, Well, if Barcelona could get a 15 million discount, then why can't we? And obviously, at the other end of the spectrum you've got Barcelona who have struggled with finances and if they're going to bring in the volume of players that they desired after Rafinha came Lewandowski so they need to be able to go to Bayern Munich and they tried it with Bernardo Silva at Manchester City as well and say actually this is what we can pay and we want to pay and we think that the player desire to join us will help us get that fee so that's partially why you get the hidden narrative around the fee. And then you hear conflicting numbers and i say it many times don't read too much into what the reported fee is leicester will always say it's a world record or close to a world record for wesley for and similarly you will find that chelsea are adamant that he's not a world record defender which is my understanding as well and to get to the bottom of the actual fear as a journalist you have to go to both sides and You have to hope that after a bit of pressure and presenting the other side, the different perspective that's either higher or lower eventually off-record compromises and tells you, yeah, that side is right. And then if you get consensus on both sides, you start to think that it's a little bit more accurate. And then the other reason why fees are not disclosed is because a lot of clubs would argue that the fee is not final until all eventualities have played out. So the structure of the deal can be paid in instalments for the base fee, which is the guaranteed part, and then the add-ons on top are variable, and you don't know whether you're gonna get them or not. So once again, if you're trying as Leicester to say, Wesley Fofana was world record at 80 odd million, then who's to say that in Leicester's narrative, 15 million of that is not in add-ons, and they might be difficult add-ons to get. So then Leicester deep down know that they're only actually, going to get 65 million guaranteed and probably not that much of the 15 million extra in add-ons. But they may call that 80 million. And then Chelsea may say, no, it's nowhere near 80 million because they're confident that those add-ons won't have to be paid. So a lot of clubs don't ever want to tell you the amount either because the final amount is contingent on so many things. And then you have sell-on clauses as well. So if a player joins... Newcastle now and let's say in five years time they're moved on somewhere else and when Newcastle move on that player there's 30% that goes back to the original club that Newcastle bought them for then that original club when they're sold to Newcastle to begin with may say we're going to add a valuation now and we're going to take 30% from that because we think Newcastle will sell the player within five years. And we're going to budget for that in five years time or between five years and ten years time and we believe that that amount is also technically part of the deal because it's a clause so they may call that part of an overall transfer fee to again make it as high as possible and i think that the thing people don't quite get about a fee and also why you have a lot of interest in so many different players is that you might go to a club purposefully so if newcastle want Isaac who they've successfully got for, we think, 60-odd million. At the same time as they're a week away from probably having an offer accepted, they may go to another club completely randomly and say, we would like to make a bid for Jamie Vardy. And then whatever they get quoted for for Jamie Vardy, they're purely through intermediaries usually taking that figure and then putting that, against another like-for-like player that could be a similar age, so obviously Vardy and Izak are not great examples, but let's just assume that they're similar in every way for the sake of making a hypothetical point, then as Newcastle try and get 5 million off Isaac, they may say, well, there's another club or another player. They can't even name the player. And we're going to have this offer accepted and intermediaries tell us that the same player with the same stats at the same age, the same stature of the same style is actually worth this amount. And it's less than you're quoting and say, as you get late in a window, you might then find that that club panic and say, yikes, they've got two solid options. So it's a poker game in that respect. And they might discount the price for you because they don't want to risk so late in the window, not getting a sale over the sake of a couple of million if it's as high as 60 million. So again, you get a lot of the gamesmanship. And naturally, if you're quoting a price that you were prepared to pay for a player that you never intended on signing to use in gamesmanship to try and get another player that you wish to sign, you then also want to keep that final fee secret because one day you might go back to a club like Leicester for a player like Madison and they may play it against you and say, well, you just bought Isaac and we know what that price was because you came to us and we thought it was a ploy to get a comparison with him. So now you want Madison, we want this. At which point Newcastle will say, well, that's nonsense. That wasn't the fee that we paid at all. It was easily 15 million less and that was all just media speculation. So that's one reason. And then the final thing to say is that The thing that agents and also buyers and sellers will feed the most to a journalist after a deal is their version of the price because they want it out there because then it's on record for all the other clubs to see. So then once again, when the next window opens, if Leicester are selling, let's just say another defender who has done really well in the last few months and everyone is saying the next Fafana then suddenly they're back where they started again and they can say, well, we only do business for defenders for around 80 odd million. So fees are always, always to be taken with a pinch of salt. Even when you think it's come from your club, even when you think it's come from your local media, they are very rarely accurate in the sense of both sides agree what the fee is, which is obviously very strange because they've both signed a bit of paper for exactly the same fee but because they've agreed under an NDA not to formally disclose them in public, then you have to choose which narrative you want to believe. And as I say, as journalists, sometimes we have to go with evaluation from one side. Sometimes one side swears blind. It's absolutely what they've paid. And if they're going on record in the case of Leeds United, then you tend to be a bit more confident because they can look very silly through the media and in the market if they are just basically lying on record. But when it's off record and you get two very passionate sporting directors, both giving you two fees, in the case of Rafinha, this is what happened, that were 15 million apart. Then as a journalist, you either have to reflect that there's disagreement over the fee that was paid, or you have to find other sources to try and work out who's right.
0: Great explanation of that, Ben. Thanks very much. Just going through the uh, the comments, lots of questions coming in. So let's try and get through a few of these as well. Tom Dixon says, what's your thoughts on Nick Pope?
1: Well, I think that he's had a great season domestically. I think no other goalkeeper has made more saves per 90, but we have seen at international level that, Mistake, And it happens in a split second and lots of goalkeepers parry balls and Havertz followed up well. But unfortunately, that is the split second yardstick, let's say, by which Gareth Southgate may now determine who his number one is. And that, unfortunately, is just international football. And of course, there are more domestic games to change Southgate's mind. But... It's kind of frustrating, I think, for Pope to end a game like that, especially when England had all the momentum and then know that that's the last England game before they rock up in Qatar. And that just might change the thinking of Gareth Southgate. But I think away from that particular era, if you look at him more generally, he's going from strength to strength and he's come into Newcastle and he's hit the ground running and he's kept some clean sheets and... I like his composure and his shot stopping and his distribution and by all accounts, his leadership on and off the field as well. So he stands a very good chance if he has a strong six weeks or so until the break of still playing games in Qatar and still being in that conversation Naturally, a lot depends on Pickford, but I like Ramsdale as well. So there's three really strong choices there. And that, again, is why, unfortunately, with a goalkeeper in particular at international level, that mistake might come back to haunt him. I don't think he'll be England's starting goalkeeper in Qatar. And that's unfortunate. But even before the mistake, I didn't think he stood a realistic chance of being the number one selection anyway. So he's back where he started, but he had a real opportunity against Germany to lay down a marker, then continue momentum at Newcastle United and suddenly put himself really in the conversation and give Gareth Southgate a headache. But we know with goalkeepers, unlike outfield players, that if everyone's fit, Southgate only picks one and then we'll play him in every game and it's going to be very difficult for any of the other goalkeepers to get any kind of minutes even if England win their first two group games still no guarantee that Gareth Southgate will give another goalkeeper 90 minutes in that third game because it's all about momentum at a World Cup and you don't want to overly chop and change especially not from that third game if you treat that too laxadaisically, nonchalantly you make too many changes you walk then straight into a knockout game And you've maybe lost a bit of momentum. So I like Pope. I think that this World Cup has come at the right time for him. And the move to Newcastle was part of being at the forefront of Gareth Southgate's mind. But I almost feel like it would benefit him more perversely if the World Cup was summer of 2023, not at the end of this year. Because then if Newcastle do end up continuing that momentum from the back end of last season before he joined, but I mean results-wise, and finish, let's say, sixth in the table, and he keeps a bunch of clean sheets and is playing consistently, then that's a whole season worth of trust built up. Whereas right now, Gareth Southgate is judging him based on what he's seen at Newcastle, but only in such an early part of the season, and then at the same time, He's seen that game against Germany, which will linger now. And international coaches and goalkeeper relations are very strange because Southgate doesn't see a lot of the goalkeeper. I'm always really surprised why the England manager, instead of just turning up to games, doesn't go to training sessions and why, for the benefit of England in particular, the manager from Premier League clubs isn't allowed in. You'd never allow a foreign country manager in because you're giving them an unfair advantage, but ultimately the Premier League should be doing things to specifically benefit England. So why not let Gareth Southgate into a week's worth of Newcastle training sessions and then follow that up with a week's worth of Man United training sessions and so on, because if he gets that inside access... He can watch Pope in training. He can get to know the personality behind the player a lot more. He can maybe even work with him on a one-on-one basis to the point where you kind of get a bit of de facto international training. And then suddenly you get that perspective, that relationship, that trust, that inside knowledge. And I do know that the FA will send people down to clubs to like liaise with players, but I've never heard of an England manager, unless they do it secretively and privately, actually being part of private training sessions but there would seemingly be nothing to lose or give away and Southgate would only be looking at the England players and then with a goalkeeper in particular you develop more of a direct relationship that you don't get and I think for the players that Southgate's work with more often or the outfield players that he just sees week in week out minute in minute out what they can do it's easy and the vast majority of his squad he'll know But with a goalkeeper, it's harder to predict because you can go and watch Pope or see him on a video and he can barely have a shot to save or he can not be heavily involved because Newcastle have got all of the ball. And obviously, as we get longer into the season, you start to pick up the fall. But let's say you turn up to Newcastle's training ground. You could just ask him to save 100 penalties and then you'd know categorically whether or not he's the kind of goalkeeper you'd bring on in a penalty shootout. You can simulate different scenarios. And naturally, England are doing this in their own training sessions, but you only get a few of them. So I think that that's the challenge specifically with Pope and Southgate, that I don't think Southgate, it's a bad word to use, and I don't mean this quite as derogatory as it sounds, but I don't think Southgate quite trusts Pope yet. And that mistake against Germany late on won't help matters.
0: John says, what if Southgate went back to club management the next season, armed with every coach's tactics? Yeah, that's a problem, mate. That's a problem. Uh, John does say, what's Ben's take on the impact of five subs so far? I really don't like it. It interrupts the flow of the game and it makes it feel like a friendly.
1: I mean, I don't like mass changes and I think that we'll see over time some finesse to it where perhaps we need stringent rules as to when you can and can't use your subs to try and stop this constant changing and time wasting so we've seen it done where you can make the five but in still only three substitutions could we go even further than that and say that you can only bring on one raft of substitutions after 90 minutes goes up for example so if you want to bring three on on 90 plus one go for it but you can't bring on a sub and 90 and then on 91 and then on 92 or could we say that you have to leave it seven minutes between substitutions for your team which would be seen as radical obviously there'd be an exception for concussion and for injuries but that would take out that tactic again Of if you make an 89th minute sub and then six minutes goes up for injury time then you'll have no opportunity to do a time-wasting sub. So that's another factor as well. But I think we have to be generous in how we look at the five subs because it isn't really something that's only been introduced for the improvement of the game. It's been introduced for player welfare to make sure that effectively squads of the same size can be bigger due to the fact that more players can be used And then when we have a mid-season World Cup and a congested fixture calendar, it allows managers more scope, which I think is actually very sensible as we look to think about player welfare rather than only our enjoyment of the game. And then who knows whether the longer it stays, more likely managers will find tactical ways to make it more exciting. So... I think we're still in this old school mode of you make a first substitution usually around the mid-60s. Some managers do it at half time, but unless you've got an injury, we often see that first substitution 62, 63 minutes to about 70 minutes. And then a bit later in the game, maybe a couple more, and now obviously up to five. But if things are going well, then perhaps managers will think about, having less subs earlier in the game and then bringing on potentially a very unorthodox two or three players all to go into a back line to see out the game and they'll play a formation that we've never really seen before. And similarly, when we're watching someone chase a game, I've still not seen that often. I can't think of an example in the Premier League. Let's say you're 1-0 down, 90 minutes goes up. You've still got three, even four subs up your sleeve. I've never seen somebody bring on two wingers, two strikers and play with sort of six up top with absolutely nothing to lose. Who cares at that stage of the game, whether you concede one at the other end and you lose two nil. It's desperation times. And that's kind of what I like about American football. Even though people hate the U.S. comparison, that you have an offensive set and a defensive set. And depending on what phase you're in, you bring on a whole new team. And I think that football fans would see that as too American. But there's a halfway house here where tactically, what can we do that isn't just a substitute with the volume now allowed? What can we do that's new, that's novel, that's groundbreaking, that actually changes the formation, that changes the dynamic? If you had, for example, a free kick, could there be a free kick specialist or it might even just be a throw-in, a long throw-in specialist? And you're only going to get them for kind of, maybe one play but can that be how you use the substitution and are we going to see specialist players that actually are part of larger squads because you've got that luxury that really are only good at penalties or are only good at dead balls and they might not even be of the right talents play in a full 90 minutes but you leave them on the bench much like a third keeper and then in desperation, on they come to maybe take a free kick or two or a long throw-in or two, and that changes the whole dynamic. And I think people listening to that would say, whoa, that sounds a little bit gimmicky. It sounds a little bit too extreme. And I agree, to be honest with you, so I'm partially playing devil's advocate here. But the point is, we shouldn't just look at five subs as five people. We should look and managers should look at how those five subs can change the dynamic of a game, particularly late on, and whether the extra two, if used carefully and at different times, can give a manager a novel and a different setup or a tactic that perhaps we've not seen before that helps get that goal back or see out the game.
0: Yeah, OK, uh, moving on to the next question. Uh, Jordy Toonby Life uh, asked, Evening Lads, have we any more news on the young lad that plays in Australia? Has he received his work permit or is there expected to be any problems? I haven't heard anything more on that, Ben to be honest, and I guess until he's paraded, you know, in the in the local papers with his shirt, um, not to get too excited.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I've not really made an inquiry on this one, certainly not in the last kind of couple of days, but I think that the situation hasn't massively changed at the moment. What we know is that Kuol, I think as it's pronounced, is one of those wonderkid kid style players which i think is where there's a lot of excitement and newcastle have been working very hard with the club the central coast mariners to try and secure a work permit but things are not very straightforward in this respect as many people watching will know signing players now from overseas clubs is far more complicated for english teams post brexit so a new arrival needs what's known as gbe points and gbe stands for governing body endorsement and the rules are really quite strict i mean think about it you had justin cliver who couldn't get a work permit when fulham tried to sign him and he's a former netherlands international from roma so depending on what you score you either get the work permit automatically or you you fall slightly short and you can have an appeal or you fall miles short. And then at that point you have very limited options. So what you might find is that there's a kind of pathway here in order to get the player where if Newcastle feel they're not going to get an automatic permit, which is 15 points required. And i'd be staggered if they get anywhere close to that because he's not played a competitive game for club or country and has played under 150 minutes in the league and the league he's in is not in what's called the top five bands so that's bands of leagues rather than the top five in say europe it's bands of multiple leagues so he's miles down in all of the different categories so, what Newcastle would basically have to try and do is agree on a deal with the Central Coast Mariners and then loan him back, or more likely, try and find him a club in Europe in a higher band than Central Coast Mariners in order to accrue the points whilst he is under loan. And then, once he's got the required points through his game time, they will then have an ability to turn the loan permanent. So I think it's going to be complicated. I think that they're going to have to be quite creative if they are to get this one over the line. But a word of warning, it's almost impossible for him to get anywhere close to the 15 points required to get the work permit in the first place, which is why one of the other routes that I've just outlined is going to have to be necessary if Newcastle are to get this one over the line, otherwise they're just gonna have to wait, monitor him, hope he gets more football with Central Coast Mariners, potentially get sent somewhere else by them on loan or on a permanent deal. And then this is where the long haul is part of the sort of equation. And what's interesting is clubs want, and PIF may fall into this category, multi-club models for this purpose. Because if you have a multi-club model, you can basically just have an affiliation or even an ownership of different clubs in different bands. And then if you're Newcastle and you think this player is going to be a first teamer in, let's say four years time, you sign now to beat off the competition and get him at a more preferable rate. And then you send him to your club number one in your model, then your club number two in your model, then your club number three in your model. And then by that stage, he's eligible to play for Newcastle United and he's been through two or three other clubs. So there's a pathway there, and there's game time there. And of course, at any point, if you feel that he's not lived up to his potential, you've got no obligation, you've not paid any big fee, you've not paid any high wage bill, you've not lost anything. Whereas when you're a singular club like Newcastle, despite their funding and their ambition, you have to be quite reliant on unofficial relationships to loan players out, or you have to go gung-ho. And take a lot more risks by pulling in players now to beat off the competition but then if they don't work out you might have overpaid or you may not be able to present them with any game time and they may get frustrated and leave and chelsea of course have found that with a number of players that they've signed in the past which is why todd bowley is now looking for a multi-club model so i think that's a separate point but it just illustrates once again in this particular situation how beneficial it is if you want this player to have that either multi-club model that is formal or at least enough relationships and newcastle will have some relationships but enough relationships that allow you to get these deals done earlier and cheaper okay um question from steve middlemas
0: is fulham at the weekend a must win for newcastle united
1: no not remotely i mean newcastle Haven't got any must-win games at the moment because their aim for the season will be to consolidate and finish in mid-table. That will seem relatively underwhelming to fans, but European football will be a bonus and the financial target and the base target will be get into the top half and then build from there. And given Newcastle are 10th in the table at the moment on eight points, and even this early in the season, I don't think from what we've seen in the loss to Liverpool in the draw with Manchester City, there's no suggestion that they're going to be remotely sucked into a relegation battle. So why would Fulham be must-win? And it's away at Fulham, and Fulham are ahead of Newcastle in the table. They're in sixth place at the moment. So it's not an easy fixture. And I think the Newcastle haven't got any must-win games at the moment in reality, but there's games that can build momentum. So when you look at the October fixtures coming up and even the ones building up to the break before the World Cup, Newcastle have got, I think, away at Fulham, home to Brentford. They've got Manchester United at Old Trafford. I think they've got Everton at St James's Park. They've got away at Spurs. And I think off the top of my head, it's home to Villa at the end of the month, and then you get into the last two or three, including the EFL Cup before November. So the home games, particularly Everton and Brentford, I think how we'll see as important and probably must win if Newcastle are to keep pace with the clubs towards the halfway stage of the season. Won't quite be halfway, of course, but once we get to the break will be edging towards that 19-game mark. So those two home games against Brentford and Everton, if Newcastle are to keep pace with the European contenders, I think that it's four points from those games as a bare minimum and how will want six from them. And then Spurs away, Man U away are just tests, much like Liverpool and Man City, of where Newcastle really are. And they've actually been better against tougher opposition than on paper, at least, weaker opposition. I think they're raising their game and they really relished playing against Liverpool away from home, desperately unlucky not to win that game, let alone get a point from it. And Manchester City, they were obviously 3-1 up in the game as well. So it's a key period because you've got Brentford. I think that's one that Howe would expect to win. And then Manu, the test. And then you've got Everton, he'd expect to win. And then you've got Spurs, the test. And the fact that you oscillate between those two in that block of four games means that if you do win against Brentford, it takes the pressure off Man U. And then if you win against Everton, it takes the pressure off Spurs a little bit. So that's why I think that's a key block of four games. Whereas Fulham away, it's early in the season. It's a difficult place to go. They're in pretty good form. They're scoring a lot of goals at the moment. They're sixth in the... Table. They've scored 12 goals, I believe, so far. That's four more than Newcastle off the top of my head. And uh, they've conceded a fair few as well. So it's probably going to be a high-scoring encounter. So, no, I don't think it's must-win. Why should it be must-win when Newcastle are on eight points and uh, tenth in the table? But clearly, if Newcastle can win it, then it sets them up for uh, momentum-building October. And these games are always quite important off the back of an international break because Newcastle have had a lot of time to think about the game and plan the game. But really, for me, it's not about any one individual fixture. It's about that block in the middle of October because of how the fixtures fall and for the reasons that I've explained. And those two home games in particular, Brentford and Everton, those are the ones that I think are crucial if Newcastle are to get around the World Cup break in touching distance of top half Slash European football, Mr. Anderson asks
0: something a little bit different. I've got an answer because I've seen the question a bit earlier. Um, if it's going to be a, a football film, just football for me, it would be The Damned United. Um, I really enjoyed that. I it was a great performance as well uh, by the lead actor. Um, if it's if, if you're going for a different a different type of film, um, Escape the Victory, probably for me, is absolutely fantastic, surely Sh- because of the cast. Uh, that are in it. But um but yeah, those those would be my two. Um have I stole your thunder Ben? or have you got have, have you got other film have you got other films in mind?
1: Damned United is very good, really well made and certainly the kind of film I like in sports that sits on that intersect between reality and fiction. I know the family didn't think it was entirely accurate but the portrayal was very moving and was very accurate in many ways, even if perhaps the exact plot and the interchange wasn't. So that's one for sure. I think the Maradona film is excellent as well. And you can watch that on Amazon Prime, I Mm -hmm. believe, only a couple of years back, 2019. And... I think if we're talking about football films we have to say bend it like beckham as well a film that has cultural significance as well as just a really strong sporting story so i always come back to that one as being one of my favorite football films specifically i guess because it's newcastle related we have to talk about goal as well although i actually think that's a terrible film
0: yeah, I mean, it, it is, but it is a classic. I a little a little note on goal, of course. I was in, I was actually due to be in that film. Oh, really? Believe it or not. Yeah, well, I was, I was a, an up and coming uh actor at the time. I, I had some extra work which I managed to get in that film. Um, and I was actually down to play Fabian Barthez because what they were going to do was they were going oh. to have. Newcastle United uh, if you remember got to the semi-finals of the uh, European um what's the UEFA cup uh, back in those days and it was to play Fabian Bartes and if i if i can find it hold on a minute yes bear mm-hmm. with this i'm going to load it um i got to play at St James's Park in goal wow as Barthes. So that there you
1: incredible. go
0: um, but the lead actor was sacked and he was sacked with controversy as was the director and the stuff that we filmed at St. James's park of which I managed to get one of my mates to secretly film on a, on a camcorder at the time, um, was, was left on the cutting room floor. So we didn't make the film. Uh, however, if you check out on my YouTube channel, Steve, right. there's Fabian Bartez, there is about 40 <laughs> minutes of me playing in goal at St. James's park. I was a lot heavier in those days, wow. um, but I did score, in the time that we had when we weren't filming, I did manage to score a penalty at the Gallagher end, and it was the day after Alan Shearer had missed a penalty in the last game of the season against Wolves at home. Interesting fact there. So there we go. Steve Wraith, as Fabian Bartez. Uh, it should I should have had an Oscar for that, but it never came about. That is
1: incredible. I need to tell you my story then. Which go on? It's not a film, but it's a soap. And my first job after university was as a runner for Sky One. And Sky One used to have the Soap Dream Team, and it started as a story of youth players trying to break into the first team, but because they followed them through, they ended up being first teamers. And those of a slightly older age, in their mid-30s or beyond, may remember originally, it used to be Leicester and Filbert Street. And the reason for that was because Harchester United, which was the team that represented Dream Team played in a purple. And the closest colour that they could find to that purple was Leicester and the blue. And because it's Sky, they had the rights to the Premier League. So they would go down to Filbert Street or they would take footage from Filbert Street and they would literally just colour the shirts in. So every wide shot you saw was just match action. But say, for example, when Leicester played Arsenal in that famous 3-3, They might just take the last goal of the game. And then when Leicester played Arsenal in Dream Team, it would be Harchester against Arsenal. And they would say it was 1-0, even though you absolutely knew that it was from a 3-3 game. And then I think as things changed and it got a bit more advanced, they went to Everton. But every wide shot would just be a game. And then every close-up, we would film at a studio on a probably two metre square patch of grass. It wasn't even a stadium. So a goal would go in on a wide that had nothing to do with us, and then we'd be celebrating, hugging on a very tiny plot of grass. And my role was as an extra player. So I wasn't quite Bartes like you because I wasn't a character player, but there was only about four actors. And then everyone else that was part of the show had to muck in if we needed 11 players. So if you watch very closely, sometimes I'm in the background autograph hunting, sometimes I'm in the crowd because (laughs) they couldn't zoom in on the crowd because they weren't capable in those early years of colouring everything. So if you look really closely at Dream Team from the first few seasons, you'll see a purple shirt. But if you look behind the goal, it's quite clearly a blue shirt with Walker's crisps on it. So sometimes there was an autograph hunter. Sometimes there's a player in the dressing room and they used to you like a pair of socks and say, walk from left to right with your head down and then sit on the bench. And there you are in the background. But the most ridiculous thing that I had to do was the drama got more and more because they ran out of plot lines. And long after I left, it got silly. It got like players with fights. I think there was one episode at Wembley Stadium in a League Cup final where there was a sniper on top of Wembley Stadium trying to shoot the chairman and miss the chairman and hit his wife or something. So it was high drama. But they would often mirror real-life stories. And I can't remember the exact specifics, so apologies if I get it wrong. But from memory, there was a influencer, maybe a model called Rebecca Luce, And I think in real life, she was dating a footballer and there was obviously some controversy to it. I can't remember the exact backstory. So I apologize if I skip over that because I certainly don't want to jump to any wrong conclusions about her in real life, but they mimicked it and they hired her in the show. And she had, I believe a, I'm going to say relationship, but it might've been an affair. I, I should know because I was working on the show at the time, but she had a fling in the show with one of the players, and then she then cheated on that player with another player, but you didn't know who the player was, so they couldn't show the player. So then one of us basically had to get into bed with her as an extra and hide under the covers, and then somebody knocked on the door and you made a little rustle under the covers, and then she ran out of the bed, and that was all that was seen. And I was the one under the covers. So that must (laughs) fame to fame. And um, you never really see this because, you know, it's a flash and extras are never really seen for that long. But I can assure you that that was the first and only acting that I have ever done. And I was not very good at it.
0: Who would have ever thought a question As innocent as that would bring up some classic stories It just shows you, you never know um, It's always worth asking a question Aye, A sniper at a cup final at Wembley A coach crash on the way to the UEFA cup final unluckiest team ever Tom, I would beg to differ Because I used to read Roy of the Rovers um, I had about 800 copies But eventually over, over lockdown I managed to flog them all on eBay um, But they had um, Roy Race lost his leg um, The entire team it was, in a, it was in, uh, in a bus crash uh, airplane crash um, they lost their entire team uh, i mean he was kid his daughter was kidnapped um, you name it, Roy Race had it, Roy the Rovers. So uh, probably up there with HHS United, uh, but but absolutely brilliant. Uh, great. Murphy's Mob was another one. Jossie's Giants is uh, mm-hmm. another one that people have mentioned, which, of course, had a Newcastle connection. Um, uh, some great uh, One of those episodes, I'm sure I've got it on a VHS tape somewhere, we will have the old Newcastle ground in when Willie McFall was manager. So that was back in oh. the 19, late 1980s. Uh, Ian's sister was in an episode of Biker Grove. And Steve says, Ben, in bed with Rebecca Lewis, well, I never.
1: <laughs> I guess but, I can claim it.
0: It's brilliant, that. Absolutely brilliant. So, Mr. Anderson, thank you for that question. That was absolutely uh, brilliant. David Cook uh, says, not surprised Pope conceded three with that defence in front of him. Surely he'd be looking forward to a better defence this weekend. Uh, yes, 100%. Um, a quick answer to this one, Ben, we've only got five minutes left. Is there any news on PIF, PIF buying into
1: no, there isn't Nothing's changed. The reports come out time and time again, and PIF, and also from Inter's perspective, Sunning deny it, and mm-hmm. usually with these things, if it was the first time you'd heard about it, you might get some intimation that there's something bubbling and they're trying to keep it quiet. But even before the Newcastle takeover was confirmed and official, There's been lots of rumors and some conversations, in fairness, between PIF and other Saudi investors and Inter, and they haven't led to anything. And the reason for that is because the original Saudi interest that did materialize in Inter had nothing to do with PIF. It was a different investor. And I think a lot of people just assume that anyone prominent in Saudi Arabia will have a link to PIF, and almost the mandate of the government so therefore it's one and the same and of course if they're successful then there will be some crossover such as trying to promote tourism and vision 2030 but that doesn't mean that there's any overlap um, al Walid, as he is known for short was the investor that thought about buying inter on a couple of occasions and didn't and then turned his attention to marseille And again, nothing materialised, and this was about two years ago. And then PIF looked at Inter directly during the Newcastle takeover before it was concluded and decided not to move. And they actually attended a Champions League game about two weeks before the Newcastle takeover was official. And at that point, it set the rumour mill off. But what you have to bear in mind is that PIF may want a multi-club model, but that doesn't mean that they want another big club in one of the top five leagues. And then the second thing is that PIF are a global business. So it's natural because Vision 2030, which is their mandate, ultimately wants to use sport. And that's both bringing domestic sport to Saudi Arabia for tourism, for funding, for jobs, for quality of life, for some would say sports washing as well, but in addition to that the flip of that sports strategy is they want to invest in global sport outside of saudi arabia to get their branding to get their name to get their messaging and it's one and the same because in order to bring sports saudi arabia you have to develop relationships with sport and naturally if you own a sports club or invest in sport it's a lot easier over time to then influence and persuade the stakeholders to do business with you not just in sport but in any industry because they start to trust you because They've got a pre-existing relationship with you and they know what you're about. So there's all of that in the mix, which means when PIF were looking at Inter, it doesn't mean they're looking to buy Inter outright. They could have been looking to invest. They could have been looking to sponsor and do commercial deals or partnerships. Serie A has been over to Saudi Arabia before for the Italian Super Cup. So PIF and other bodies that invest in sport are quite confident that Serie A clubs would come over to Saudi Arabia and play competitive games, which is another thing that Saudi Arabia would quite like. And you might have read recently that there's a real feeling that there could be a possibility of staging some Champions League group stage games outside of home country grounds, with America touted as a likely destination, but don't be remotely surprised if you see one in Saudi Arabia or one in Qatar, and how do you persuade Inter or Newcastle if they ever get there to abandon a group stage game? Because I think there'd be outraged at St James's Park if you qualify for the Champions League, even if it's against a smaller club in the group, and then it's not at St James's Park. I think there would be an absolute revolt, and I don't think that Newcastle would ever be able to pull that off. But there's some clubs out there that might be able to persuade their fan base that it's in everyone's interest. So who knows what those conversations were about, but the reports from about a week ago suggesting that PIF have started talks again and will bid 1.2 billion euros to outright buy Inter are not true. That offer was never tabled. PIF are very firm and happy for it to be put on record that they are denying that. And Suning have said exactly the same thing. So you never quite know with takeovers because there's red herrings as we found with Newcastle, and they can be done very secretively. But uh, fundamentally, as I've said many times, every sort of three months or so when this rumour rears its head, my understanding, having spoken to sources on all sides, is again that there is nothing to this story.
0: Yeah, great stuff. Uh, thanks for your answer to that. Thanks to everybody for posing the questions. People asking um, if you've ever been in Baker at Grove, Ben.
1: No, not in Biker Grove. My one, honestly, acting was Dream what Team. Was that? That's it. it was Dream Team. Although, okay, there I am at Biker Grove. That was me. Oh,
0: wow. um, I was at Biker Grove three times. I played a security guard. I played a, a boom operator. And I also played a workman. But I did Biker Grove three times, uh, which was enjoyable. There's a quick one of me on the pitch as Barthez.
1: Oh, you look like you've conceded.
0: Yeah, I did. And... I was in the Cass Pennant film, playing the Geordie hooligan, <laughs> um, along with Leo Gregory a few years back. Um is that, and that was Murray? uh It looks like him, doesn't it? And yes, I was in Vera as well, playing Big Bad Pete. Um, and <laughs> the missus said that this was the best acting I've ever done because I'm never in the kitchen. <laughs> so there we go. A little trip down memory lane with my acting career, uh, which is still ongoing, thankfully. Um A quick one as well, for those of you who used to tune in for True Crime on this channel, um, we have our own channel now. So all the True Crime stuff, which you have watched on this channel, is being migrated to the True Crime channel. So if you're interested in True Crime, uh, please head over to there and drop a subscription uh, on YouTube, the True Crime channel, all the documentaries, all the interviews that I have done. Take some time to build it up, believe you me. Uh, but we will migrate it all to that channel. And that way we have a clear separation between the football and the true crime. Something which people asked for. Uh, I finally got round to doing it. Uh, just want to thank you, Ben, though. Absolutely brilliant uh, tonight. Uh, great, of you, great of you once again to, uh, to jump on. Quick prediction for Newcastle Fulham. How do you see the game going? You mentioned you think there might be goals.
1: I think it'll be high scoring. And I think that Newcastle will win 3-2.
0: Fantastic, and uh, Rachel you're quite right, brilliant contribution from the chat and fantastic uh, contribution from the moderators, thanks as always for all your help, I will be back tomorrow night uh, 7 o'clock with Jordy's here, Jordy's there look forward to catching up with you next week Ben take care, have a good week mate
1: have a good week everyone, see ya